Last night, the Green Party of Bath and North East Somerset held an event called Greens in Office. On the panel were Molly Scott Cato, previous MEP for the Southwest of England, and now the External Communications Coordinator for the National Party, Paul O'Rourke, who is the leader of the Green Group of Bristol City Council, which is the largest Green Group of any council in the UK. Joanna Wright, who is Green Councillor for Lambridge in Bath, and Sam Ross, who is Chair of the Parish Council at Farnborough in North East Somerset. It was a great event and lots of important points raised and good questions asked. The meeting was chaired by Jonathan Oates, who is co-chair of Bain's Greek Party. Here we go. Welcome everyone. My name is Jonathan Oates and I'm co-chair of the Bath and North East Somerset Green Party. It's my pleasure to welcome you here to Twerton Park on behalf of the party for our autumn event, which we call Greens in Office for reasons that will become clear. Thank you all for coming. I thought I'd start by telling you just a little bit about Twerton. I'm going to give you a little, a little run through some facts which I'm not going to pretend I may have known about two hours ago, but which I think you'll agree make some sort of sense when bundled together. So Twerton is recorded in the Doomsday Book back as far as the 11th century and seems to have been a feudal property that was handed out to the local servant of William the Conqueror. It was apparently where Fielding wrote Tom Jones. I thought that was uh, in Wickham, but that's uh, quite a large dark house which he lived in, but apparently he did the work of Tom Jones here in Twerton in the 18th century. And for those with a liking for infrastructure, Twerton upon Avon was on the main line, on the railway main line, until 1917, and apparently Twerton was the terminus for Bath tramways until 1939. Fielding's Lodge, where he did his scribbling, was demolished in favour of road building in 1963. <laughs> <laughs> Switching to today, Twerton most obviously is the home of Bath City Football Club, established in 1889, where its stadium is to be found. Does anyone know the name, the sort of colloquial name of the team? It's quite a green place to be. It's got quite a good community atmosphere, as you can probably see and tell. I think there's some literature on your, your seats. And I believe it's true to say that the club is more community owned than not, if by a slim margin. Secondly, it's home to Bath City Farm, which is a 37-acre 100 animal farm run by a charity of that name with about 12 staff, 50 volunteers or so, 25,000 visitors a year. That is on the high ground over there a little bit. And last of all, which is a little bit sombre I'm afraid, um, I'm afraid to say Twerton is still one of the 10% most deprived localities or communities in the country, rather soberingly I think over a third, well over a third of children in Twerton are growing up in poverty, a situation which has probably got worse during the pandemic. Um, so, wrapping it all together, I think, as you can hear, in both Twerton's past and present in the microcosm is something of the challenges we face at all levels, as well as the better world we need to create. This event, the Greens in Office event, is for members and non-members alike, 
people a chance to come and talk to and listen to green politicians. In this case, I'm delighted to say four eminent green female politicians. This is an all-female panel, which is a very feast, I think, in UK social life in general. We are very lucky indeed, I would say, to be joined by Molly Scott Cato, who is, is this correct, Molly, external communications coordinator for the Green Party, for the National Green Party, is a professor of economics still at Roehampton, and was former MEP, I think, twice elected. 17%! <laughs> for South West England and Gibraltar, no less, until recently. Let's put it that way. To my right is Councillor Paula O'Rourke, who is Councillor for Clifton Ward yes. in Bristol, and is leader of the Green Group on Bristol City Council, where the Bristol Green Party is now the joint largest political body in the council. And Paula, what did you say earlier? The largest, the largest Green Group in the country? In England and Wales. In England. To my far left is Councillor Sam Ross, who is, I'm pleased to say, my co-chair, and who is also the chair of Parish Council in Clutton and Farnborough. No, just in Farnborough. Just in Farnborough. And to my far right is Councillor Joanna Wright, who is our sole Green Councillor at the moment in the Guildhall in Bath and North East Somerset. So, please give them a warm welcome. And, and I'll tell you about some housekeeping. So, very briefly, the format for this evening is we're going to look at a couple of set questions to a relaxed affair, a round table, albeit it's a straight one. We'll be passing the mic between panellists. Then we'll take a comfort break, I think probably in 45 minutes, but we're the timekeepers, so if it feels like we can go on a bit, we'll go on a bit. So if we want to speed it up, we'll speed it up. And then some Q&A after the break. So if there's anything that arises um, as a result of that discussion, uh, please feel free to ask questions afterwards. Probably try to close at 9.30, but it's not a strict target. I have to leave at 9.30. Molly will be disappearing. Last of all, on the COVID front, I think it's fair to say that we're going to try to err on the slightly cautious end of the spectrum. So, unless you're drinking or talking maybe, a face mask is probably uh, a reasonable shout. And there is hand sanitizer at the left edge of the bar. And I think that's enough from me on that score. Is everyone okay about that? Great. In which case, I'm going to pose a question. I shall start to my far left. I seem to like the far left. And our first question is a sort of personal one, and I'll sit down now, which is, can you please tell us a little bit about your background, each of you, and your route into the Green Party and into office? Thanks everyone for coming tonight. Yeah, my name is Sam Rosk, and my background, I do have an environmental background. I did a degree in ecology and conservation management, finishing in Bristol, so most of that was in the southwest. I grew up in the southeast, but left that behind. And I moved to this part of the country. I actually used to work at the Environment Agency, which is literally just down the road. So Twerton is a bit of a stomping ground for me. I used to know it for about 10 years. I got to know people quite well, because there was a lovely market that used to occur here um, on a Thursday morning. So I know 
really the politics of this area and how poor it actually is. And I, that is one of my big bugbears, actually, with regard to veins and how it deals with poverty um, on the outskirts. But that's a different question, I think. My route into the Green Party, I've always been a Green Party supporter, from about the age of 17, when I wasn't really particularly. It was actually the party, my party of choice, when all my peers were very much Liberal Democrats. And I always thought they were a bit sort of mad, not being worried about the environment more than they were. And back in the 1990s, the, the environment was very much a, a thing, but probably not in the way that it is now. So I've been a supporter of them, but I haven't really been a major kind of part of the Green Party until I moved to Arthur Northeast Sunset. I joined the party in 2015, but didn't really get involved until much until 2019 when I served as a paper candidate elections for Fort Cup and Farnborough and and then got involved with the party a little bit more. So locally I'm very much a community champion. I'm very much into sort of rural communities and improving services for rural communities. I'm very involved in my local community. I have been for at least 15 years. I've been on many committees, community plans, and now I find myself and well I helped set up the local community shop which Molly actually uh, came to in 2019. And I joined the parish council after standing in the, the, for the local election. And uh, I've recently been made chair, which sounds awfully grand, um, but on a parish council that isn't really as grand as it sounds. I do get to open school ponds and things like that, but uh, mostly I just have to chair the meetings and I just have a vision of where I want farm would go and try and encourage other councillors and the community to get behind those kind of projects. So that's where I am, that's a little bit of a background, um, and I'll pass over to Molly. Thank you, Sam. So, when I was thinking about this question, I was reminded about when I first went to school, and I'm sure this happened to you as well, they give you a sort of buddy who looks after you and shows you the ropes, and I met this person who'd been my buddy years later, and she told me that I went in on the first day and she showed me the toilets, and I said, um, this is outrageous that we only have those little tiny toilets when most, you know, when adults have much bigger toilets. And when she told me that, I really laughed because I thought that was kind of what was always driving me in politics: the sense of unfairness and the need for justice. So it might have been focused on toilets when I was five, but obviously I found other causes as I grew and developed. And so I think really it's always been justice. Now, climate justice, obviously, but you know, justice and fairness that's really been my main motivator. But then in my teens, I found out about nuclear weapons and the threat we all faced, and that definitely propelled me to get more into politics because I grew up in Bath, so I founded Bath UCND then. I think I was 16, something like that. Actually, because I had nightmares every night and I couldn't sleep, and once I started doing things, I found it was a lot better. So, the solution to political anxiety is political activism, in my view. And then the third thing was very much feminism, I would say. And, you know, this was a time when you had TV shows with men kind of in tuxedos and women in pink tutus, you know, and that was considered normal, and that did infuriate me. So, that was probably the third thing that drove me. Anyway, to answer the question very specifically, sorry, I won't go on much longer. I told this story before, but when I, so I studied PPE at Oxford, so I was always interested in politics, and then I did a lot of work with Latin Americans, and um, had this friend called Jaime, who was a, a Chilean refugee, and one time we were just naturally together, and he said to me, I know what you are, you're a green. And 
I didn't know green was a political thing then, so I said, well, that's a really weird, what's he saying to me there? And then I, I learned over the next couple of years, this tells you where the Green Party started and how much we moved on, actually, because even I didn't know there was a Green Party then. And then uh, I realised he was right when I found out what the Green Party was, and that was 1988, it was just after my son was born. And so, yeah, then I became a Green and uh, done that ever since, actually. It's a long time now. I don't regret it. I mean, I've had a lot of fun, but it's, it's most of my life. I was, like you, first elected to a parish council in Blackton, which is not far from here, North Somerset. And then I was elected as a district councillor in Stroud in 2011 and led the group when we took power from the Tories. Taking power from the Tories was a high point of my life, I've got to say. And then I was elected to the European Parliament in 2014 and re-elected, as you said, in 2019. I'm so proud of the 17% that some of my fellow MPs made a tea towel with it on because I obviously said it all the time. Anyway, that's enough for now. Thanks for, thanks for listening. Thank you. And I didn't wear a tuxedo. <laughs> Hello. I would suggest, I mean to, to say it actually, <clears throat> that I made a mistake in 1996. Uh, and that mistake has been a tremendous tragedy for this whole country. Let me take you with me here on this. So in 1996, I was living in Bassett Law in Nottinghamshire, and I joined the Labour Party, and I was selected as a councillor, and I was going to begin my career in politics. And if you think about it, this was just before Tony Blair came in, and the whole Blair's babes, and I was a young woman, and unfortunately, I got a job offer promotion. So I took that, and I didn't follow my career in politics, which obviously, I would have gone into Parliament, successful, I would probably be Prime Minister today, and we wouldn't have Boris. So therein lies the tragedy. But I didn't do it. So I carried on with my career in schools, and then moved to Bristol in 2013. And at that time, I read a book, it was Owen Jones's book about the establishment, about how both parties, major parties, are just out for, you know, the self-interest motivates them rather than anything else. And I was very disenchanted. And I also read an article in the New Yorker by Bernie Sanders. And in that, he talked about political parties that do the right thing for its own sake. And that really resonated with me. And then it also happened then in 2015 that it really looked like we might get a green MP in Bristol West. So I rang up one day and said, right, I want a poster. I've got a big poster in my window to try to help the Greens. And our local call coordinator is a woman called Marion Tucker, and she came around with um, a poster, and then she said, will you come and help canvas? And I discovered that I loved canvassing. I, I'm just sort of anthropologically so interested in people that I loved knocking at people's doors, talking to them. So I became a great canvasser and helped out in that election. And then, because Bristol at the time wasn't an all-out council, we had elections again in 2016, and there was one Green and a Tory and Marion said, would you stand? And she said, it would be a miracle if you won. <laughs> but stand on even slightly. But I love a challenge. So I went out and I knocked on every single door. <clears throat> and I topped the pole. So, and I took out a Tory. So I got a taste for it. And then I became a cancer, that's 2016. And 
I did feel a bit of an imposter at first, especially screen, because I, I had that whole thing about am I green enough, how green is green, not vegan, you know, <laughs> and, and I, I was apologising at the beginning, saying, oh, it's social justice that I'm more interested in, more than the environment. I never say that anymore. Now I just keep going on about we have a climate emergency. We have to front that. So I began to really enjoy it. I liked making speeches in the chamber. I then got a chair of scrutiny. I had some success with some projects working across party, which gave me more of a bit of a taste for power. And then of course came May this year, and we had a huge boost, and we are now, as you've been told, the joint largest party. Of course, it's not as great a story as it should be, because Bristol has a, an, an elected mayor who has executive power, and it means that you know, he hasn't given us any power, and we just keep saying the same thing, that the, the electorate expected demands that we have real influence, and we are, we're doing a lot of stuff. I'll probably tell you a bit more about that afterwards. So that's me, that's how I got here today. Serendipity played a big part of it. And I look out to every audience, and I'm always thinking, that person could be a cancer, that person could get elected, that person, what will you do it? Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Paula. So, it's Colin, isn't it? Callum. 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 Oh, okay. So, uh, actually, when I was 17, uh, it was 1987, and it was the year of the general election. And I went to, I had been to another school previously and I moved to another place to this other school which was quite well to do and the people there were really were quite bizarre, the world that I had previously lived in. Anyway, I decided to stand as the communist candidate and I spent, I remember one day walking all around Cardiff trying to get pictures of Lenin so I could get posters of him and then I could photocopy those of them and stick them all over the school, which I did. And I remember actually this man following me around because he was quite intrigued by me going into shop after shop looking for pictures of Lenin in 1987 in the centre of Cardiff. And eventually he did stop me and he said, um, what are you doing? And I explained what I was doing. And he gave me his phone number and then he took me out for dinner and my mum was so worried. <laughs> so um, I've always like, got myself into difficult places with very strange stories. So, my route to this place of being a councillor at Bath in North East Somerset was my husband is a skateboarder and when my children were little I realised they got to a certain age and there was nowhere for them to play when children get to about seven or eight. All the play areas aren't very good and there's not much for them. And we went to a skate park, actually Midsummer Norton, and I was so impressed by generosity of what was essentially a poor area and how kind and what a generous community these young men had together skateboarding. And it just seemed bizarre that on the Easter path there was nothing there for a whole group of people. And then when you started looking at the data, there was, I think, it's about 20,000 young people live on the Easter path and they have very few play facilities. And I just thought that was really unfair. So I started campaigning for a skate park and that sort of morphed into other things. I then became a member of Transition Lark Hall. I've always had a sort of green leaning and I could see the value of that. I did a piece of work with the University of Bath about transport because I was just annoyed by how many cars were driving around and I got a team of us together and we counted them over two weeks and 
got that and counted about 45,000 cars and did this whole piece of research, which then led me to think about how cars move around and, and things kept falling out of that. So whatever I've been interested in, I've just sort of followed and then things have followed from that. I look over at John Lucas, because in 2019 he approached me. I live in Lambridge and we had a Green Councillor in Lambridge and I could have won as a Green Councillor and the Green Party wanted me to stand and I was a Green Party member. Anyway, I had watched <laughs> Lynn Patterson on her own in the full council for four years as a lone councillor and I just thought that was a very lonely place to be and I didn't want to do that on my own. So I decided I was also approached by two other political parties and I then went with the Liberal Democrats and I stood as a Liberal Democrat and won as a Liberal Democrat. And then I became cabinet member for transport for two years and various things fell out of that, including COVID and the lots of measures that we had to put in. So I've been through very turbulent times in a very turbulent world and I've always stood by my principles, which was actually public health, which is why I wanted a skate park for young children, was really important and essentially why our transport system doesn't work is that it's against public health issues on lots of levels. So what I've recognised is the world is greedy and going back to those communist principles, I think what I've always wanted to do is make sure that the world shares things equally and I think that's as close as the Green Party comes to, to any other political party, and that's how um, I've now come back to. So we always come full circle. Okay. Thanks very much. Thank you all. I don't know about you, but I'm, I'm struck listening how you can hear the gradient by which one becomes gradually more engaged in different ways, and how rapid it can be. Secondly, I'll start with you, Joanna, this time, if I may. Now, this is well, this is a bit of a tall order, so don't take it too seriously, but what I want is the answer on the beer mat to the question, what is the situation we are in, what needs changing, and who and what needs to do what? You can kind of answer it how you like, but it's like the macro picture as you see it. What's the big picture? What's the reality of our moment? I didn't know these questions before I sat down, so this is a bit of a, quite a big question. Can I pass this to Paula first? Thanks. Well, I, did, I looked at questions and I made some notes and I left them at home. <laughs> I do remember some of the things. Um, and one of the things I wrote down, and I actually said this in a radio interview recently, and I didn't mean to, but I did say you've just got to adapt or die. I mean, I think we need to keep, you know, we just need to really understand how close we are to absolute meltdown. And we are in an emergency. And it is just business as usual. And we have got to be, we're, we're, we're a lone voice, but we've got to keep shouting as loud as we possibly can. I mean, obviously, you know, we're talking about some of the things, the, the levers of change. One of the first things we need is electoral reform. Because we don't need buffoons like Boris being elected to just lie, produce, lazily allow us to just falter forward as, as, we, as, as we completely fail the next generations. So, you know, we all know about the fact that, you know, these parties are elected in on 24, 32% of the vote. So we do need electoral reform. And we also need, you know, we need more 
we need to, I suppose one of the other things I want to say at the moment is the fact that you know, we need to break the two-party system. And we think about how much this country has suffered so that the, the Conservatives could be kept together. We need to have, there, there probably are about the equivalent of maybe 60 or 75 MPs who actually could represent right-wing people. And we need to let those people have a vote. And then there's a centre-right and centre-left, the Labour Party. The Labour Party fails to make any policies because, again, they put internal politics and keeping themselves together as a priority. And if we had a sort of system of PR, then we have a proper left-wing party and the Greens could be a big problem. So, so those are some of the big macro things that we need. I, I think we just need to, at the moment, the phrase that keeps resonating in my head is, you know, keep 1.5 alive. I think we need to really hang around that. We, ha we need to hang on that message. And we need to demand real change. One of the things that I did last year, I'm really pleased about, is, is we did a citizens' assembly in Bristol to, to how we should recover from COVID. And that has been so good in so many ways because we did the thing that we, you know, we, we, we trusted citizens. We gave them what we need for democracy to work. AC Grayling wrote a book democracy uh, sometime around 2016, just after the referendum. And in that he said, for democracy to work, you have to do two things. You have to have an informed demos and a reliable press. We don't have either of those things. So I felt in Bristol I could do something about the first one, which was have a citizens' assembly, put some citizens in a situation where they're allowed to really have you know, proper expert advice and lived experience and from which they could make their recommendations. And the Bristol, <clears throat> the Bristol Citizens Assembly has come out with some fantastic, 17 fantastic recommendations with 95, ooh, mm -hmm. that's me, I'm sorry. <laughs> You've had it off, switch her off. <laughs> anyway, I could probably talk to you anyway, just, I mean, I, I probably, anyway, so back to, I think I've talked enough. <laughs> Joanna can. Back with so, so it is the big things. It's about let's not tinker around to the edges anymore. We have to, we have to give up some things. We have to just really make changes. Yeah, I agree with Paula on that. We have to work out how do we share what we have in a more equitable way. That is the biggest picture. And how do we do that in a way that everybody feels that's a just transition? So, I mean, I know that those are sort of key words that the Green Party are using. Okay. Thanks. <laughs> But it, yeah, it, but it comes back down to, hello, hello? Just try without, I'll, I'll reset it. But it comes back down to us having to be agile in that space and be hopeful in that space. So we, I think the catastrophes that are about to overcome us are going to be there and we can't undo that. It's about how we work together as communities to face them together and to tackle them. And I think as, as time ramps, uh, as time goes by and those catastrophes ramp up, we're going to be faced by either having, either having guns and shooting each other and being really unpleasant or coming together as communities in a very hopeful way and recognising that actually arts and language and being 
playful is probably what it is to be human. So I think there's a lot to do with technology at the moment that has stopped people thinking about being human. And I think that's a really important part of where we're at at the moment. We're, you know, we are really in a world where it's not useful to a lot of people anymore and we've lost the sense of belonging to the landscape and, and how those things come together. So I think the combination of technology, of, of real catastrophe happening around us and having to be agile and learning to be hopeful together is part of the process. And also that various different, everybody is in different places and has different le levels of ideas of consciousness and how do we use that together to take ourselves to a better place. So I'm actually, I'm really hopeful for the human race that I think there are more good people than there are bad people and it's about us making those voices go together. I don't know whether this is working at all, which is a rather good uh, demonstration of what Joanna is saying. Is it not? <laughs> Molly, are you all right to throw your voice yep, a bit? I'll do my best. So obviously there's an awful lot of shit going down at the moment, so we're not going to resolve any particular issue. So I'm just going to agree wholeheartedly with Paula that the main problems we've got are political problems. We don't live in a democracy here. We're not seeing implemented in this country what most people want to happen. So that's like by definition not a democratic system. We've never really had a democracy in this country. We've got some kind of 18th century mishmash. You know, well, they were afraid we'd have a revolution, so given this much power, people on the streets given that much power. Nobody sat down and made democracy work, and that's why it doesn't work. Corporations are far too powerful. So we all saw at Glasgow the largest delegation there was actually the fossil fuel industry. How did the British government allow that to happen? The vested interests involved made it impossible to come up with a good agreement. And there's another demonstration of how democracy is failing. If you've heard me talk about climate at all recently, you'll know I'm completely obsessive about carbon tax, because to me that's like the lever you put on the whole economy to drive fossil fuels out of it. And actually, whenever you talk to a journalist about that, they always say, oh, but people wouldn't like that. Look at the yellow vests, they always say. But actually, there was a, a climate assembly, people were sat down, they were, all the different policies were suggested to them. 94% of people said we should have a carbon tax. You never get that many people to agree about anything in this country. But they could see, as I can see, that that's the one thing we're going to do to move the whole of society in the direction we need. So we all organised for this petition, 100,000 people filled in that petition to our parliament, and we had a debate in Westminster Hall. Guess how many MPs turned up? Four. Four MPs turned up for that. It just shows you that there's a gap, there's a break in the transmission between what people want and what happens in power, because our democracy doesn't work. Obviously, PR is an absolutely crucial part of that. So it took 25,000, 26,000 votes nearly to elect an SNP Member of Parliament in 2019, 38,000 to elect a Tory, 58,000 to elect a Labour MP, 336,000 to elect a Liberal Democrat MP, and 800,000 to elect a Green MP. In a democracy, votes are equal. In our country, votes are not equal. So that's number one, but we also need a written constitution. At the moment, this government can just push through, using its majority, any changes to the constitution. So they can say you have to have this document to turn up to vote. They're engaged in massive voter suppression and manipulation so that they'll win forever. Therefore, we need a written constitution and we need to reform the House of Lords so we have a proper democratic second chamber. You can actually see from the, the action on sewage and so on how effective the House of Lords can be. But because it's not democratic, it never has the kind of courage to force the issue. And they always back down at the end of the day. So anyway, those are, you know, 
three proposals for improving our democracy, but one of the things I'm going to try and coordinate for the Green Party to do in the new year, and please do join in with this, is, is what we're calling Campaign for Real Democracy. And obviously it involves things like um, free press as well. We don't have a free press, we have a bought and sold press. It's not the same thing. Anyway, I'm getting irate now, so I'll stop. <laughs> <laughs> Campaign for Real Democracy, that's, uh, that's the thing. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, I can't disagree with any of this that's been said already. Uh, electoral reform is basically the, the key thing as far as, as far as I'm concerned. But also, I think education is key as well. Certainly from a local point of view, from being a parish councillor, it's quite shocking how many people don't understand the different tiers um, of politics. So from very local to your local authority and up through to um, an MP. The, the, the number of people who think I'm at actually a, a local authority council and some people who think I equate with an MP as well, even, you know, and, and that's just shit simply down to, I don't know how many people in this room can say they were ever told how the electoral system actually worked. I mean, I remember going to vote for the first time, and it was actually in my 20s, because when I say that I was agreeing from age 17, that was in 1992, and I missed being able to vote in the uh, election by two weeks because my birthday came two weeks after the general election. So it wasn't until four or five years later that I actually got to vote, and that was in Bristol. And I actually had to ask my partner at the time what he did, because yeah. I had no clue. Now, I shouldn't be in my mid-twenties and have to ask someone as an adult what you do to vote, and I think that's appalling. And if people don't know how to vote, they're not going to register to vote, they're not going to understand how it all works, and that's all part of the problem. So. But uh, I, I suppose in my situation, because I'm at sort of that lower level of political standing, a lot of my stuff is, is grassroots based. I see a lot of stuff in being educational and informational and, and allowing people to understand how they participate and what that actually means. Actually bringing forward that injustice of, of how it doesn't actually do what it says on the tin and it doesn't get people what they want. And it's, no, and it's no wonder that then people feel angry and disenfranchised about things. But also, like on a positive note, joining you with Joanna, I think there is still positives, and I think people can get involved in things at a local level. And I think it's really important that we kind of press for things like even at a local authority level, although everything is, everyone's going in on the basis of a political party, there shouldn't really be much in the way of party politics at local authority level. We all want this right thing, don't we, from our, from our area? We all want um, our area to work together, but I sometimes feel that the politics gets in the way of that. So, yeah, the, the cross, they all, everyone says they're, they're working cross-party, but actually very little of it actually happens. So I think there's a lot that we kind of, as people, we can get involved in, even if we're not part of the political system. But I think if people do have any engagement politically, they probably need to get in there as well. Because some of it needs changing from the inside, and some of it needs pressure from the outside, and I think it's a two-pronged approach on that. Thank you all. That's a very big beer match. This leads nicely, by design of course, into what difference does it make when you elect Greens? What difference do Greens make in office? So can you please illustrate using your own experience, Councillor? Okay. You look at me. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think in Bristol, we, we have made a difference. And the first thing I'd probably talk about is the fact that Carla Denier was the, was the person who proposed the first climate emergency motion that was, was passed in Bristol and, and then of course that has then resonated around the rest of the country and Europe and lots of different places. So, you know, that's an idea. 
that came from Bristol, came from Green councillors. I think that, you know, I think, go back to the Citizens' Assembly, the, the Citizens' Assembly that, that I, I, I wrote a motion called Reboot Democracy, and uh, the Citizens' Assembly was part of that. And now we, we're actually, I mean, we've got some real things there that, are, that have been mapped onto the corporate strategy with some, you know, absolute timescales on. It's a mandate, and we, so, so for example, one of the things that there, the citizens have said, that they want us to take between three and 5% of road space for cars and for parking away each year going up to 2030. I love it. I keep saying it all the time. I say it every time I go to cabinet, I say it as often as I can, I say it on the radio, I say it, I say it everywhere. And then I, as a local councillor, what I've also done is I've closed a street, a shopping street in Clifton. It's just, you know, it, it's, it's incredible. We've closed 100 metres of, of a road, shopping street to cars. And it's almost as if I have, I don't know, I can't think of anything dramatic enough. Perhaps this is like a Greek tragedy for stolen the... For the, the for, yes, stolen for, of all the, the tradespeople there. They have put up so much opposition because they can't drive their SUVs to go straight outside the shop and go in and buy something massively expensive. And <clears throat> I'm, I'm having to hold the line. It's really difficult. The extraordinary amount of... Um, opposition that's been put up, literally thousands of comments, walked coffins in the streets, they, they're now plotting something even bigger than this. And it's something that's really made me think that, you know, it's so easy to say, keep 1.5 alive. And we all, we, you know, we, we, we don't have any climate deniers anymore, but we certainly have a whole world full of climate delayers. Absolutely, yeah. Oh, yeah. Gosh, yes. Yeah, gas boilers. You could, you know. I mean, I say to people when they say when they go, they give out about the the, the fact that the road is closed for a few hours a day. So, right, wait till we come for your boilers because we've got to have to make these changes. And I don't want to sound really self-aggrandizing, but I don't think I don't think any of the Labour politicians or any of the the Tory politicians or the Lib Dems in Bristol would have put up with what we're putting up with. Because I don't really care whether I get re-elected or not. I don't care that much, you know. I, I believe I'm doing the right thing. And, you know, it's very much something that has been fronted by me. And I, I've been very much the person who's doing it. But, but I think that's what you need. And I'm always reminded that, again, back to the Citizens' Assembly, we had people down from Walthamstow. And, and they've done a lot of, low, you know, getting rid of cars. And I asked one of the um, politicians from London down, saying, what do you need actually to do this? What, what, how, how could we help people do this more? They said, all we really need is brave politicians. So, you know, I mean, I think there is that element of bravery, but also I think, you know, green, green politicians do the work. We turn up, we, you know, we, we read all the papers. We're quite sort of, you know, in a way, a little bit maybe jobs worthy, but, you know, we're there, we're rigorous, we challenge. Yesterday, I mean, things like last week, we put in a motion for a workplace parking levy because it's a sensible thing to do. If, if we want to have modal change and if we want to be able to fund things like cycle, cycle paths and, and bike hangers and, and, and better public transport and all those things, where's the money going to come from? Well, you put in a, a corporate parking levy. So you make executives who can afford to pay. Why should all these people be allowed to come in, use our roads, 
pollute our city and not have to pay anything. And we put our motion in, very well, very well written, nothing, nothing you know, outrageous, do a proper business study, do the consultations, do all of these things, and Labour, Labour allied with the Tories to wreck it. And that, that's what we're doing. So, you know, what, what you need is you need, you know, there's 24 of us, so we're, we're getting a bit of, we're getting a bit of welly because we support each other. And we just keep pushing at it and pushing at it. So you need hardworking, brave, determined Green councillors and politicians everywhere. That's what we need. Sorry. Thank you. Molly. So we often say that a green in the room makes all the difference, and I, I really believe that's true because we just have a very different perspective on what we're trying to achieve for the world and in, in our political life. But I would just say I don't want Joanna to carry on being the only green in the room. So three of you in this room will have to become councillors next May, is it, the elections? No, 2023. Oh, 2023, that's loads of time. Yes. That's loads of time. So, you know, I think everybody in this room has to get at least two new activists into the Bath Party every month between now and then and just mobilise and get the, the votes are there to be won in Bath. I mean, people are, are fed up with the Lib Dems and fed up with the Tories and Labour's a dead duck here, although they do have £1.3 million. Did you see that in private eye? That blew my mind. They have half the total budget of the Green Party just with Bath Labour. Anyway. That also shows you what we're up against. But we have people power and we have right on our side. So that's my uh, challenge to you here in Bath. Anyway, three things that we did achieve in the European Parliament. I mean, it's well recognised that the, the EU is leading the world on all sorts of green legislation. And that's because there are a strong bunch of, of greens there. I think it was, yeah, I'm going to get the numbers wrong now. But it was about 50 when I was there. And it's now more like 75 so only the fourth largest group in the parliament, but really organised, like you said, you know, great staff, read the, read the detail, come up with great ideas, just push it through, follow it through and have the courage to do it. So three examples. One is the conflict minerals regulation. I know a lot about this because I sat next to the person who pushed this through the parliament called Judith Sargentini. She's a, a Dutch green. And what that means is that now there's three metals all beginning with tea, which I can't remember, and gold. And a lot of the mining for those takes place in countries like the Congo, and the money that's made from the mining feeds the civil war there and the child soldiers and so on. So she pushed through a law that said those metals cannot be imported into the EU anymore or be included in any product sold in the EU. And because the EU has big market, biggest market in the world, 500 million people, that puts pressure right down the supply chains right across the world. So you know, that's a very important achievement. And it's sort of setting the scene for using trade policy to improve conditions, social conditions, but also environmental conditions across the world. Second thing is something I worked on myself, which is about tax avoidance, stopping corporations avoiding paying their tax. This was finally successful last week. The commission published a proposal essentially saying that corporations have to pay their taxes once, and then there's a sort of way of apportioning that tax so all countries across Europe get the fair share and the amount of tax you pay relates to how many jobs you create in that country and how much wealth you create in that country. So it stops that process where they offshore their earnings to a low tax jurisdiction like the Cayman Islands or shamefully Ireland or Luxembourg or somewhere. So they'll then pay tax at a fair rate right across the European Union and it will be just 
basically you charge a withholding tax if they try to offshore their money, you just hold their money. And so we worked very hard for that for the whole six years I was there and it, it actually worked, went through last week. It's still being negotiated but the Commission has brought forward the legislative proposal. And the final thing is something that was actually announced yesterday and that's another proposal that again we've been pushing for and I'm going to say this is down to Anna Cavazzini who's a German, it's interesting they're German and Dutch but they both have Italian names, I'm not sure what we learned from that. But uh, she's on the Trade Committee for the Greens and she has been instrumental in bringing forward this law where the EU is going to ban any imports that have been produced on land that's been deforested. So we're talking about things like palm oil from the deforestations in Malaysia, soya or cattle from the deforestations in the Amazon. So essentially, it's a bit like the conflict minerals. You know, we're not going to have that stuff in European markets, and if we don't have that stuff in European markets, it just pressures the whole world to, to raise their standards. So one of the things I argued a lot as an MEP is that the EU must use its trade muscle for good. At the moment, it often uses it just to the prices and benefit the EU, but actually, it can be using it to improve standards and conditions across the world on climate but on a whole range of other issues so that is also now starting to happen and that's been driven by greens so there we are that's my top three thanks very much sam yeah from a very local perspective which is really all i can speak i uh, parish councils are kind of an interesting one i can't speak for town councils but parish council interesting in, in our area very few of them are actually elected like you would expect. So we have a round of elections, but um, if there aren't enough people standing, everyone who is standing literally just gets uh, there by default unless someone puts a hand up and says we desperately want to vote on this, which most people aren't engaged enough in their need to do. Um, so although I am a green in the room, I'm not necessarily known as being a green in the room. I'm kind of like a subversive green in the room, but I can't say that most people don't know my green leanings, especially after standing in 2019 as a paper candidate in the area so most people do but I think in terms of sort of what I bring to the table at a local level is because I I put my actions I, I put my words into actions so I actually do a lot of stuff in the community I actually help people I'm very interested in people not being left behind both in terms of the community aspects and from a rural perspective as well and then obviously by standing even as a paper candidate that then goes with me um, I stand. So in, in many ways, I feel like my job at my level, even if I never got elected myself, would be to promote what Greens actually can do. So if it basically raises the profile of Greens and makes people more likely to vote for them. Because I know a lot of people will often say, oh, I'd vote, for, I'd vote Green, but... But I think a lot of that is because people don't necessarily know a lot of Green people. People don't tend to go out their way to say, hello, uh, my name's Sam Ross and I'm the Green Party because that would make people just get a particular opinion of you before they even start it. But I think once people get to know who you are, what you stand for, and then you actually stand for things, people then more likely to consider that when voting maybe at other levels as well. Or even if they're not in your area, that will get changes in people's perceptions of what Greens can actually do. I mean, nothing I've done specifically has been specifically Green, I would say, in terms of like climate or anything like that, but it has its knock-on effects on the only thing I have done um, significantly with our parish council is bring forward a climate and nature emergency declaration. We're one of the few rural areas that actually has. I think we were one of the few after to, uh, to come to Martin and Freshford that actually declared it. I know other um, parishes within the area who just wouldn't be able to get it past their parish councils. 
I was actually fairly surprised that it happened. I brought it, I put it to them, there was a bit of a conversation, and then everyone voted in favour of it. And I was actually quite shocked because I thought there'd be a lot more opposition than there was. Unfortunately, that was just before lockdown, so we're only just getting to the point of actually doing anything about it. But now, as chair, I can actually sort of push more of a, an agenda of trying to make sure that everything we do as a council is, you know, in line with that, and also anything that goes on within the village. So, I think at my level here, and I think this applies to anyone in this room, if you're active in any way, and you can get involved in the parish council, I appreciate the path itself isn't parish, which I think is a real shame, especially for areas like Twerton, because I think it would benefit from being able to make decisions for itself, rather than having things either imposed on it or not given to it at all, because I think money tends to flow more to the affluent areas rather than to those that actually need it, and I think that's a real shame. So anyone active in that, trying to get more money flowing into those sort of areas from a social justice point of view, as well as the climate, is, is a good thing on all the levels. Thanks very much. And Joanna, I think you have a number of things you might choose to talk about mm -hmm. in your, wow. what is it now, six, six months or so? As being a Green, well I suppose I've always been Green and when I was even a Liberal Democrat I still saw myself as Green and I think the difference that I brought to the room was that I was willing to make the decisions that nobody else was willing to make in that space and to be brave. As Paula has said, one of the things a Green councillors, a Green MP, is stand up and say what's the right thing to do and then not only say that this is the right thing to do but then act on that right thing. In my experience this year I was basically told to drop something that I believed was wrong and I stood by my decision and that was the right thing to do. So in terms of politics what I achieved as a Liberal Democrat was I put in the Liverpool Neighbourhood Policy which will transform Bath and North East Somerset and how people move around and it will bring lots of areas to think about how they move around and what people do and I think that is really transformative at a very local level. I got that skate park built, it took 12 years and I'm really proud of that skate park and one of the things that it has done is it has transformed that space for a lot of young people and now people from across the city actually flock to that area in a way that they never did before and they I think happiness in terms of politics is as important as, as you know, making changes that are problematic. So I think what a green person brings to the room is the willingness to not want to be elected again. I, you know, I don't care what people think about me. I think that it's important to make the right decisions in the right place at the right time that you're forced to make. So for instance, during the pandemic, I was responsible for bringing in all the uh, uh, social distancing measures in across Bath and North Somerset, and I took a huge amount of flack. I, I in, even in my own ward of Lambridge, we put things in locally, and on the Friday night they were ripped out by an angry mob in the local square. And I spoke to officers first thing on a Monday morning, and I said to them, "Put them back, and I will help you," because I realised that that was more important. Public health and keeping people well and alive during when we are still in the pandemic was more important than what people thought about me or what people said about me on Twitter. And people say an awful lot of awful things about me on Twitter. So that's fine. They, they can say what they like. But actually, it's the actions that you do that are the lasting legacy, and that is the right thing.
And then thinking about that more widely, I think the other thing that I brought to the room when I was a cabinet member was that I spoke to officers in a way that I don't think they had been allowed to have before. And I opened up their, their box of thinking instead of tick boxing. And I got them to think about things in a very different way and the joined upness of their decision process. And what you can see is problematic at, at a local level and at a national level is there's no joined up thinking. And I think we all see that, don't we? We'll, we'll go into space and we'll think, well, if the politicians had done this and this, it wouldn't have done that and that. There is no joined up thinking. And I remember saying that to officers, you just tick boxes and how do we do this differently? And I, and I made sure I brought really quite imaginative thinkers to speak to them and have spaces in which they could have those thoughtful conversations so they stop ticking boxes. And I think there is a massive lasting legacy that sits in particularly Baines Council from that process that you won't see. And there was a, a small thing that happened to me too. So I also had to sit, I sat on various boards and one of them was the Western Gateway. So the whole of England is divided up into huge areas called Peninsula, Western Gateway, I can't remember the other ones, but they're about strategic transport. And I was sitting in this meeting and it was full of essentially conservatives and they were talking about strategic transport networks and how we should organise them. And I said to them, well, I'm only going to agree to what you're saying if we can put cycling onto all of those strategic networks. No, that's crazy, and I'm like, no, I'm not voting this through unless you do that. And they did, and I think, you know, I will never see that legacy, but in 20 years' time, when all of that falls mm. into place, that's what will happen, and I think that's the other thing that's important, is what you do today has probably very little impact, but it has a slow, gentle moving out to the world that has a cumulative action, and that's what I think green moves to. Molly, I'm a bit conscious of time, so you, you judge how much you want to answer this, but this leads into why and how should we get more Greens, but also more women, elected? So I'm going to try and persuade the party to start a new campaign, and this campaign is called I Want a Green MP. Mm. And the reason for that is 10% of people in this country want a Green MP, but as I already read you the numbers, everybody's sort of conspiring with this electoral system to stop that happening, and that's undemocratic and it's unfair, and we just can't wait any longer. For one thing, we can't leave Caroline there, having to do that all on her own, but also we need the 60 MPs that 10% suggests, because we need all this change to be happening at Westminster. So, yeah, I'm not sure if it's like, you know... Uh, baseball caps or t-shirts or badges but we all I'm, so I'm a little bit disagreeing with you I think we do all need to say hey I'm a green and I'm doing a great job and we need to be in parliament anyway yeah we're all going to have to step that up that's coming to you in the new year if I get my way um, electing more women obviously the answer is to vote green because we have so many women in our party in all sorts of prominent positions I said to a journalist recently you know we're the party of tough old birds aren't we he said I cannot possibly comment but it's, it's so true that we are so all I would say is, to me, the, the issue is there are many more women in politics now and some great women. And the more, if we had a lot more, if we had PR and if we had more Greens, we would certainly have more women in Parliament. But the, the main lack I see is women getting involved in the sort of work I do around tax and, and fiscal policy. So I would really encourage women to get involved there because I'm not going to carry on doing this forever. And I keep trying to hand the torch on and I don't find anybody. And all the women say, oh, Molly will answer that. And... Well, no, I won't, actually. You're going to have to do that yourself. So there's my challenge to Green Party women. Thanks very much.
Molly has to leave us fairly soon. How soon? It's half past eight, though, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. So all right for the moment. I said nine o'clock, but I don't mind staying a bit after that, okay. but not long after. Well, you, you be the, the arbiter there. <laughs> Sam, would you like to follow? Yeah. I am the election campaign uh, person for Bath and North East. There you are then. Green Party. So, <laughs> so anyone who would like to uh, stand in the, in the 2023 election, please let me know. Obviously, we will only have a couple of target wards, and so we will need people to stand up to actually, who actually wants to be elected. And so I know a lot of people will contact me saying, I'm happy for your name on a piece of paper. That's great too. But we do also need people who actually physically want to be in the room and actually want to be elected as a councillor. That's actually quite a challenge. One, because people don't really know what it involves, and two, because people think it's going to literally take all of their time. And I think there, there's a conversation that we probably need to address in, the, in another sort of panel like this as to what that actually entails. But, uh, yeah, I mean, we, I mean I'm with Molly. We, we just need to get, and, and I know I said I said, I don't. Get that T-shirt, yeah. get that T-shirt. Yeah. But, but, but that's not what I'm standing for election. I don't care if people know I'm agreeing. I'm standing for election. That's fine. But, yeah, I think, I think there is a certain thing that puts people off stating that, and I think that's... That problem. We do need to overcome that as a party and as members of the party. And I think having a, a national campaign and, and a means of getting that to our members is, is really useful. People just need to get engaged, I think, a little bit more. We need to, as a party to work. But actually getting women to step up to be elected. I think from my point of view, as a, if you're in an area where there is a parish, that's a great way to get involved, first of all, is just to actually get yourself on a parish or a town council. It gives you an insight into certain level of things and gets you, you can, you can get involved with meetings with the council in a way that you just wouldn't really be able to get your foot in the door in any other way. So you start to see the inner workings of things. As a chair of party, that brings you even more things. I get things that come into my inbox that also go to the clerk. So there's a lot of meetings that I can turn up to, like talking to other parishes, other parish clerks, town councils, and, and even things as well. And I think all of that stuff, again, it comes down to having that information, having that sort of educational resource as to what it actually means um, and actually understanding what's it. I'm not saying it's an easy hill to climb. And I think one is that the first thing is not being afraid to say that you're bringing and actually not being afraid to say what that actually means. And it means, as you can see from this panel here, it means a lot of different things to a lot of different people. It doesn't, yes, we all know about the climate emergency but there's so much more to being green than that so it's about sticking up for people and actually wanting everybody to have a fair shift of life really rather than actually some people holding all the chips and everyone else sort of feeling that they have to wade through the quagmire and everything so um, I don't feel like I have all the answers but uh, if you want to come on that journey of, of elections then uh, please just get in contact with us and we will be running a lot of campaigning and we'll be doing all that stuff that Paul is saying in terms of canvassing and there will be a number of you will think, mm, well, I don't know if that's for me and then you'll probably find that actually it's something you really enjoy and it's, it's certainly something to get involved with. Thank you. Joanna. Well, I have two sons, sort of 15 and 18, and every day they put their heads in their hands and they go, why are you doing this, Mum? You're mad. <laughs> there isn't a day that they go by and they're like, so many people are horrible to you. Yeah. <laughs> why do you keep doing this? And so I can't, I'm like, well, if I don't step up, then who else is going to step up? So I guess at the end of the day, we'll, 
we have to be who in the world we want to live in, don't we? And if we don't step up ourselves, there isn't anybody else. You know, I am the grown-up in the room, and unless I do it, no one else is going to. And I think that's really important, that you just step up and you do the right thing, and you try and mobilise enough people to do that with you, and that, that you take things forward. That's, that's where we are. We will all turn to dust at the very end of this. So there's nothing wrong with what you're doing. And I think there's lots of fear. So, I mean, last night, I had a terrible night last night. It was for council. I put forward a carbon tax motion. I was attacked verbally by a whole load of people in a very unpleasant way. And I, could, I literally felt my heart crumble inside my body. And I didn't sleep last night. You know, and it was a very painful place to be in. But I have a really good yoga teacher, and she tells me that you know you're not when you do a yoga position, you're not going to be in it for that long. So I think I see that in politics. You know, it's unpleasant at the time. You move on, and there are more nice people out there who say to me, "Well done for what you did," than there are horrible people. So step up, get on. Well, in Bristol, we have an 18-year-old woman who is one of the youngest councillors, maybe in the world. And we have a Sudanese man, and we have a, we have a Somali man, and we have another woman from African, African Caribbean background, and we have a lot of councillors who are in wards which would have been normally labour wards. So how did we do that? Well, we did it because there was a, a, a strategic campaign and that put us into the position where we are now, let me say it again, the largest green group in the whole country. And I feel now, as the leader of that group, that it's, it's my job to not just see Bristol, I don't want to see just Bristol as a green city. The southwest has to be a green region. And I think that that's why, you know, I really want to support Joanna in Bath and, you know, councils in North Somerset and, and wider than that. You know, we really need to think about spreading that green message. And I do think that the, the, there's, a, there's a campaign strategy called Target to Win. And I think that with that support and with having, you know, each of you does have the power to do what you, you want to do. You're here tonight because you want to see more Greens in, in power. And you have that, you have that capacity to, to make it happen because at the very basic level, what we need are people to deliver leaflets, people to do the door knocking, people to support you know, election campaigns and, and, and just run a campaign. And what we've done is we have completely turned over areas where Labour were complacent and just, just felt that they, they knew exactly where they were. But on the, the doorstep at the election time, people went, oh yeah, we've seen your leaflets. Oh yeah, I see you, you got those swings fixed. Oh, I see you did the thing about the skate park. You did the this, that and the other. So. You know, and, and this week I've been spending a lot of time going around to the wards for other councillors and saying, right, you know, in 2024, what do you want people to say that you've been doing so that you win again? And, you know, and I think that, that's, what it's, that's what it's about. It's about getting out there, hearing people's concerns, listening to them and offering them some answers. And, you know, we do have answers, don't we? We know, we know how to fix the problem. I was thinking earlier, I have to say it now because I've reminded myself again. You talk, you said the word feudalism in your introduction. And I'm having this little fantasy. But you know, in, in 1351, the plague came. And it was really bad. But the one good thing that came out of the plague was 
feudalism died. And so I think maybe capitalism. And every time they say, ooh, wages are going up and the, and the, you know, the, the workforce is all supply and demand, I'm thinking, yeah, let's change things completely. So, okay, we're not going to probably bring down capitalism, but hopefully we can shift that thing, you know, that Overton window, which you may or may not know about, which that thing is, you, you know, you shift what's acceptable. And I think we can, as, as Joanna and Molly have been saying, we, we shift the window. You look outside, you see something slightly different, I think that's normal, and we want a new normal. What happened to all that last year? Oh, build back better, new normal. You know, people have forgotten about it, and we can't let them forget. So we need the big, loud voices. And women seem to be quite good at doing that. So you get lots of women, but we'll have men too. Thank you. Amen. Amen. <laughs> Uh, thank you all very much. Is there anything else anyone would like to say before we bring this part of the evening to a close? So thank you all very much. What I'm going to suggest is everyone takes a comfort break and following that, see if any questions have occurred to you, anything at all you would like to ask from anyone. But we won't be able to ask that of Molly because you're going to leave us shortly, I think. We're rushing around the door. She did say nine. Right, because I haven't got my watch. <laughs> what, time, what time is it now? It's a quarter to nine now. Yeah? Could you do a few questions? Do you want to take a comfort break yeah. for five minutes and then do some questions? Or would you rather turn Let's to... just do some questions now. Yeah. I think that makes okay. sense. I think that makes sense. Yeah. Would anyone... If, you, if you'd like to put your hand up and then give us your name and a question. What's on your mind immediately? <laughs> <laughs> Carbon tax and carbon pricing. Yes. Can you tell us the difference? Carbon pricing just means any way of putting a price on carbon, so it could be tradable carbon permits, but carbon tax is like a better way because it's mandated at a certain price like this. It's £100 now, it'll be £500 by 2030. Businesses know what's coming, therefore they can prepare. With a carbon market, it's going to do that, it's going to be volatile, and also businesses will gain the system. Yeah, my name's William Walden, I live in and. Something's been bothering me because we're, as in environmentally aware people, which means cut down on our use of plastic. Don't we all agree on this? Single use plastic. Uh, single use plastic, right. But I think plastic is a problem all around. And there's so much any individuals can do to buy less plastic, use less plastic, and throw less plastic away. But you look around. And there are millions of cones, barriers. There must be, must be all around the world, I don't know. So certainly all around. But drive along the motorway, there are thousands, hundreds of thousands of cones and barriers. You see them here in the street, we've got this lovely Georgian city, but it's festooned with brightly colored plastic barriers. This doesn't, nobody seems to see this or notice it. And what's well, plastic production is going up and up. And is there anything physically that could reduce plastic production? But just in general, you're asking how would you reduce, through public policy, plastic in general, the use of plastic in general? Yes. Yeah. But I think individuals are trying to do that a little bit, quote unquote. But local government seems to be, is it local government or regional government, is buying trillions of these plastic objects. So what can governments do at various levels? Would anyone like to...? Well, I, I would say that 
people have realized the risks that come from plastics. And so there, there is a shift away from plastics. It's not necessarily all plastics, it's particular kinds of plastics and the ones that break down into nanoparticles are the worst. That's why we're very focused on the microplastics. But generally, I think there is now a shift away. And obviously, if you've got a strategy like Joanna was talking about at local level, you can start to influence and move away from plastic. But I don't think we should be against all plastic. I'm afraid I always use the example of a catheter, but to me that's like a very good example of where plastic was a lot better than what went before. And, you know, but that's where we start from. Like, is plastic the best thing? If it is, then let's keep with using it. So we don't need to be completely ideological about it. But just to say as well that, as you pointed out, single-use plastics that are the worst, and because I'm the external communications coordinator, I've seen an embargo press release that's coming tomorrow, and the government is actually making quite a, an important move on actually banning some single-use plastics, but also charging deposits on others so that they can be reused. But also remember that if you have like water in a glass bottle, it's a lot heavier and therefore has a larger carbon, a climate impact than water in a plastic bottle. So. Like everything, when you're talking about environmental impacts, it's quite a complex, multifaceted picture, so you don't want to be terribly ideological about one thing and then have other impacts elsewhere. Would anyone like to add anything? We've got loads more questions there. Yes. I think we should okay. get more questions. I, I would say if you uh, want less roads and road use, you're probably going to see less traffic cones. But we'll leave, we'll leave that until next we meet.
important, but you know, you can feel it coming, can't you? You can feel it coming. And it will make it would make such a difference. And not just obviously to you know to the numbers so that we would get you know we would get the amount of seats that we deserve. And also, I mean I said it earlier about you know people on the right. UKIP deserve, you know, when UKIP got four million votes and did get a single seat, that was just as wrong. So we need to have proper representation. And also, you know, coming from Ireland where we have PR, I can't explain to you the difference in um, people's engagement with politics and the turnout at elections. And I've been in pubs in Ireland where people have, you know, in the papers they, they print out the ballots, a bit like uh, the racing cards, and, and they're there, and you have people going, no, 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 Molly's not getting my five, she's going to get my seven. I, I'm, going to, I'm going to give my two to Joanna, and they're arguing about that. To have that level of debate down to 16, you know, and, and it's just so exciting. Down to the um, age of 16. No, no, I mean, 16, there'd be 16 choices. people on it. Right. So, and they argue all the way down to 16 votes, who are they going to give them to? And, okay, so maybe it takes a bit, a bit of time to put a government together. You know, there's always a coalition. It works. And it's about engagement and, of course, compromise and all of those things. Oh, go ahead. So at the moment, we've got a government that the polls say is supported by 38% of people in this country, right? Which means 62% don't support them. I think we just need to be much clearer that that's outrageous and wrong. Labour always do this thing when it comes to elections, get the Tories out. But actually, if they wanted to get the Tories out, they'd change the electoral system. Yeah. But they don't do that because they, would, they think they would lose jobs. And a lot of it is about the jobs with them, and they would lose money. But what they would lose is this position as official opposition, and then they'd be held to account compared to other parties, and that's what's frightening them and why the leadership is refusing to do it, even though 83% of the members want it to happen. So I'm constantly pressuring Labour people, why, why would you belong to a party that disrespects you in that way? Why would you continue to be a member of that party when what 80% of you plus want, they're not going to do? I mean... I, I think it's a lack of self-respect if you carry on belonging to a party that treats you that way personally. But this is also part of the point of I want a Green MP, right? Because it's like in any other country, you want a Green MP, you vote for one, you'll get one. Yeah. That's what living in a democracy means. So I think we have to push that. And also, we, we have now at the national level stepped up, and lots of local parties are like, including Bristol, obviously, you know, they want an MP now. That's a new thing for us as Greens, I think, being quite so confident and strong about being clear that that's what we need. And that in itself puts pressure on Labour, because when the election comes around, they always think we're going to stand aside for them in some just outrageous, entitled way. I mean, I stood in Stroud last time, so I, I tend to agree with Joanna. I, I won't stand again, because my children were quite upset by the way Labour treated me. And they were afraid for me, and that's not a nice feeling as a mum. But that shows how, how frightened Labour are when we actually fight them in elections. And we just have to do that. We have to have the courage to do that. I mean. I would do that again, because I think it's important. And we have to stop that thing where, like, I, I campaigned on doorsteps and people would come to the door and say, sorry, I won't do a rude impersonation, I'll just say it. <laughs> people would say, oh, well, I vote green in local elections, but I always vote tactically in general elections. And I had my daughter with me and she, she's a ferocious campaigner, I'll have to bring her down to Bath. And she just said, why? Why do you do that? And that's the question, isn't it? Green Party members who think it's fine when it comes to a general election to vote somebody else. We just have to stop accepting that. We have to get a lot more confident and a lot more clear that we think people should be voting Green because we've got the best candidate. People were rushing down the street and saying, oh, how could you have chosen such a good candidate? 
I mean, that's the insanity of the system we've got. Anyway, in terms of what we can do, I mean, I don't know how often you have Make Boats Matter stores here in town, but that's really important. There's a whole Brexitometer type thing where you can say, you know, is this electoral system working for climate change? Everybody says no. Is it working to represent you well? Everybody says no. Does it choose the best politicians? Everybody says no. You know, and then you put that out on social media. Every week you need to be doing that in town with a stall and also then, of course, encouraging people to come and get active with the Greens. And, of course, the other thing is work with Make Boats Matter who are very focused on this. They've, in my view, spent too much time focusing on the Labour Party and they are a bit disillusioned now because Labour didn't support PR. But Make Boats, you know, Kleiner, who runs Make Boats Matter, is a Green and, they're, yeah, they're just a very good organisation. So there's quite a few. There's also Get PR Done, you know, follow all these on Twitter, share what they're doing, get active in their action days. It's an absolute priority, not just for the Greens, but for the country. And there, there, there's a lot of people campaigning on it now. Like I said, I think we should have our own campaign, but when you do this campaigning as a political party, people always dismiss you as self-serving, so it's good to also work with the campaigns that are out there. I'm interested in your opinion on the Progressive Alliance approach as well, because that seems there seems to be two things. There's the, there's the Make Votes Matter, and then there's the Progressive Alliance. And a lot of people, I think, are confused about what that actually means in terms of voting for the So I'd just like to... Yeah, so Make Votes Matter is a, a campaign for PR. Progressive Alliance is a, is a strategy that s people suggest because we have a crap electoral system. Yep. And so, but, but, but Progressive Alliance only works if all the parties get involved. So we had Unite to Remain at the last general election and Liberal Democrats stood aside for Greens in 10 seats and then we stood aside for Lib Dems in like 30 seats and then Plaid Cymru had 10 or something like that. So it only worked in 40 seats, but it did work as a proof of concept because people did stand aside for each other. But the reason it didn't work, wasn't effective in getting rid of the Tory government was because Labour wouldn't get involved. So Progressive Alliance, I mean, I don't, I was a strong supporter of it until that voted Labour conference and then I'm, I'm finished with that personally. So our position now is, if Labour wants to come and talk to us about that, our door's open. But we're not going to waste any more time when Labour effectively are blocking a better democracy. The only party in Western Europe, the only social democratic party to support, you know, an unfair first past the post. I was trying to think of the name of it then. Yeah, first past the post. And the only other country that has it is Belarus. So, you know, that tells you where we're at in this country. But Labour's still supporting now. I will stop going on about Labour now. But... Um, <laughs> Just to say that the other thing is that if we stand candidates and fight very hard for seats, we, we don't have the power to win seats at the moment in very many places, but we certainly have the power to stop other people winning seats. And if that's the only power we've got, we have to use that power to pressure on the system. And so I think we have to be, we are getting ahead now. We need to, you know, we need to select candidates everywhere and we need to stand those candidates everywhere. And if we're going to stand aside, we only do that if we get a clear run of the Tories somewhere else. Otherwise we stand everywhere and we carry on doing that until the other political parties actually, because you heard from my numbers, you know, it's us that loses out by this. I mean, the Lib Dems lose out as well, obviously, but we lose out overwhelmingly. And everybody that votes Green, it's not like about me or Paula wanting to be MPs, it's about everybody that votes Green not having their vote represented. So, mm. yeah, but us fighting very hard in parliamentary seats is the best way we can put pressure on the whole system. I think Bath is a very good example of how, for many years, people who have voted locally haven't voted for what they believe. There are many people I have spoken to on doorsteps saying to me, well, I'd like to vote this way, but 
I don't want a Tory government, so I'm going to vote that way. And we ha that is a sort of conversation that you have across the country, I think, is that that tactical voting is a way that we've all come to live our voting experience. That is no longer acceptable. My experience of being a Liberal Democrat is there is a massive difference between being a Liberal Democrat and being a Green. And that actually, if you want Green, vote Green. And that I would never, ever suggest to somebody, again, to vote Liberal Democrat to, to, get, a, to get rid of the Tories, because I think they're not much different. So if you really do believe in changing the world, vote Green. And get other people to vote Green and understand that that is a real significant difference. And we have to stop tactical voting and we have to highlight why it's the wrong thing. Last night, Joanna proposed one of the most common responses was, no, that's not up to us, that's down to the Treasury, that's a Treasury decision. And while I agree, it would be fantastic if tomorrow we woke up and the Treasury said, yeah, you know what, carbon tax is the way forward. We all know that that's not likely to happen. So how do we respond to that? How do we really get this dialogue moving? If, if local councils are willing to engage in support. Well, you're looking at Molly. There is a, I'll just quickly say, there is a, there is some validity in saying if I don't have the power to do that, I won't pass a motion. I mean, that's a purely technical question, right? I mean, I'm sure you framed the motion in a way that makes sense for the local authority supporters. So it's a kind of get at. But your bigger question is really about what's going on in the Treasury. And that's a very serious question because you can see from the budget where Rishi Sunak didn't mention climate once, like four days before COP, it was unbelievable, and then makes it cheaper to fly and cheaper to drive. You know, our press release said, has the memo about the climate emergency not reached the Chancellor? You know, that's basically where, where we were at. So, but I understand that, like, the business people, the people who actually have to make re re um, the reductions happen, like Quasi Quarting and, yeah, who, who is the other one that's a supporter? Greg Clark. They are supporters of, of carbon tax, and it's essentially Treasury and Number 10 who are blocking. And so there's quite a big fight going on behind the government. So I think what we tried to do anyway in the run-up to COP was put it on the agenda, keep putting it on the agenda. I had to actually bribe our speakers with bottles of wine, because it's a little bit technical, they didn't really want to say it, but after a few bottles of wine, suddenly they were all saying it. And then it was being discussed a lot more. So I think that's the most important thing to do, make it, put it on the agenda, and make sure people, so your motion, put it on the agenda, right? And then write to the paper and say, why haven't we got this? And all that kind of stuff in conversations, in local media. And we're definitely trying to do that in national media as well. It's not actually complicated. That's why I like it as a policy, because it's actually very simple. And obviously, the other important thing is to always point out that the 80 billion, we reckon, that you could bring in every year should be spent on supporting people who will face higher prices, especially through insulating their homes and providing better public transport. So that, yeah, I think I often talk about it because I'm, I'm a person who loves tax, you know, that's my thing. The joy of tax, that's me. But, uh, you know, it's very important to say yes, but that money actually supports the transition. So it's tax and dividend, that's really important. I, I also think it's very hard for people to understand new, new, new ideas. And essentially the carbon tax is a new idea. And with any new idea, I mean, who was the man who said the world was flat? Not the world was round. 
European style services. So we all go, I was in holidays in Switzerland, and I had, you know, and they had amazing hospitals and they have amazing everything, and they have amazing things. Well, yeah, because they pay 40% tax. Yeah. You know, so, you know, we, we do have to, we do have to somehow or other get the message out. I did want to say one thing about talking about favorite cartoons. One of the reasons that I, you know, when I, when I joined the Green Party, I saw a cartoon and it was um, a, a man standing on a whole pile of stuff, you know, broken televisions and all sorts of things. And he was standing on top of it and he said, why am I still not happy? Mm. And and I think that's that's what you're saying, to reframing that whole thing about, I think we're getting to the stage where we're realizing that buying a yellow toaster instead of a red toaster to match your yellow curtains isn't really going to, you know, make you happy. <laughs> and that maybe, you know, we spend so many times putting up big defences. When we really start getting the message out is that, you know, if we're not careful, you know, we might have gated communities at the moment, but in 10 or 20 years' time, we're going to have throngs of people trying to come here because they, they can't live in their world anymore. So, you know, the whole narrative seems needs to have to shift. So I think it is actually probably, you know, I think what we do need to bring down capitalism, just like the plague in 1351 <laughs> brought down feudalism. That's the only thing. Just to say quickly that this tax will only be paid by fossil fuel companies and mining companies, so it's not an individual tax yeah, at all. Yeah, I think, I think it was really clear, actually. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. yeah. But yeah. maybe not to everybody no, else no, here, no, so it's important to, to point that out. And I, if anybody wants to write to their MP or, you know, use some information, I put a whole account of why it's actually a very progressive tax on my MEP Facebook page just before the parliamentary debate. I'll send an email to Jacob Rees-Mogg tomorrow. Oh, please do. <laughs> <laughs> you could headline it, The Joy of Tax. I'll let you know <laughs> what the <laughs> topic is. Madam. Hi, I'm Jacob Rees-Mogg. I feel that all the font is in the name of the font. It's very difficult for people to understand. Instead of calling it carbon tax, it was called environmental tax. Instead of VAT, So just in case anyone didn't catch that, I think I think what you're saying is why don't we have a, a line in every invoice we see, in every receipt, every bill we see, for a carbon or an environmental tax, just as we see VAT as a line? Yeah. Yep. I really like that? your idea. Yeah. <laughs> 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 just to say, Gordon Brown introduced a carbon tax in this country. Um, I can't remember exactly when, towards the end of all those Labour governments, but he called it carbon price fraud because he thought people didn't like tax. So I think it would be better to call it carbon tax but, and dividend. Mm -hmm. Tax so and dividend. It's been around a long time. I mean, the EU tried to do this in 1992, but it was blocked by Poland and a few other countries. So it's not a new idea, but until we do it, we're not going to have the effect. So. No, I'm, I will wear a t-shirt saying carbon tax. <laughs> and dividend. And dividend, exactly. <laughs> You're right. That part I can see. Any last question? Hi, I'm Carl. I'm the chair of the University of Africa. 
So the UN has just declared the world's first uh, famine as a result of climate change in Madagascar. How do we make people down the road all, of, all across the UK care about issues that are perceived as so far away? Well, two, two ideas. One is we, we ran a third strand. We had, three, we had three strands that we were talking about, one of them ahead of COP. One of them was carbon tax. One of them was reparations, which I'll come back to. And one of them was called saving everything you love. And I think that third one's really important. You know, people may not be able to connect with the loss of species in Madagascar, but we're going to lose oak trees in this country. We're already losing ash trees. We're going to lose all sorts of birds and butterflies and stuff people really do love and care about. So I think that's really important. There's a Green Party blog called Saving Everything You Love. Why don't you go there and post? A, a, I've posted something. You know, other people have posted what makes them really heartbroken about what we're going to lose because of climate change. But coming back to the, the middle part, I think we need to really undergo some serious education about what climate justice actually means. And that's why we put the second strand, which was about reparations, which was explaining why our history of, of emitting vast amounts of CO2 is actually the same reason we're a rich country, because we exploited other people's resources through colonialism and enslavement. We used the money that gave us to drive our industrialization. So this is all part of the same complex, and it's now why we're rich, and the countries of Africa and Asia are poor. So therefore, that's, that's the heart of climate justice, which is why we suggest that you know, money needs to be paid as reparations. And it shifts that debate from like, oh, poor old Africa, let's give them some aid, you know, that sort of charity narrative towards the justice and uh, atonement narrative. And so there's a lot to be done in that department, but the most important thing is teaching our history honestly in school. I mean, I went to school here, you know, 12 miles from Bristol, which started the global trafficking of enslaved Africans. And we did nothing, literally nothing about that. We used to play, my sister's there, and Catherine. So we all played hockey up on Lansdowne, Beckford's tower was there, overlooking. Beckford actually got more... Comp when, when we abolished slavery, they compensated not the people who'd been enslaved, but the slave owners. And Beck William Beckford's father got more money from that compensation than anybody else. That's how he built that tower. That's how he owned various other bits of town here. That's why he put his huge art display there. Not a squeak about that. You know, so let's start by teaching young people the honest truth about our history. Well, I was actually going to talk about AIDS as well, but from a different angle. And the fact that, you know, we, we're sitting here and we are all benefiting from the fact that our government have cut the aid budget uh, so that countries like Madagascar and, and other countries like that, you know, all of, all of the, the value that, I mean, they, they say they're going to do it for two or three years just to benefit us. It's, it's, the, it's the nastiest, lowest decision, I think, that the government have ever, have ever made. And, and they make us complicit because they make it on our behalf. And so then it, the cycle goes around again. What do we need to do? Get them out. Stop having politicians who make these decisions on our behalf. So Madagascar, you know, nobody's going to, nobody here is going to save Madagascar, are they? And we've really, you know, we've got to change something before that can happen. So I don't have a good answer for you. And your answer about education that you said earlier. Yeah, and I'm, 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 I was kind of saying to you again about kind of historical stuff, there's an interesting date, and I think it's called Fate, and sort of going on about Bristol and the falling of the Colson statue. Now, I, I wasn't brought up in Bristol, but I know quite a lot about it, because I'm 
mile and a half in the Bristolian. And they all got taught about Colston School. And they were taught about the slave trade and a lot of that stuff. So it's very sort of very specific in a very particular part of the country where they knew about it. But even so, the history of Colston has been completely washed over because everyone believes that he's this great man who gave money to everything. But he was universally hated at the time. People don't really realise that. Nobody liked Colston. I think, they know, I think they know that now. <laughs> well, yes, but that's the thing. This is the thing. All those people who are trying to say that taking the statue down, somehow rewriting history, actually, all it did was bring the actual history to life. So the, the reason why it's so easy to get that statue down is because it was made very low-grade metal, because nobody wanted to pay for it. The Victorians hated it, and it was put in, you know, in state a long time after he died, and no one wanted to chip in. It's one guy who basically funded it after failing to get money out of the local people. So, you know, that's why they could just pull it down in an afternoon. But no, not many people know that. But I think, yeah, it's, it's about education, about understanding where we've come from. Also, right. Empire Land by Satnam Sangira is being on, they made a two-part documentary of that book. So let's make sure everybody watches that as well. Because that's a really interesting true history of colonialism in this I have heard sort of, you know, like whole carbon trading and stuff that goes on and offsetting and, you know, we're great, you know, we're on top yeah. of it, but actually we're kind of not counting everything else. It's kind of the new colonialism, you know, it's kind of... Uh, I read that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> well done. See, I, really I, read I spoke to the Guardian about that but today. I'm hoping she might write yeah. the story with but it. It's a, yeah, but it's a, it is a... I've heard it elsewhere as well. Mm. Good. Because they picked it up from you. <laughs> no, but it's I'm going to attribute it to you anyway, Molly. No, Please do. Thank yeah. you. I mean, the slave trade still carries on, essentially, the way that we have put money in hiding tax in the, in the Caribbean I do have to is, is, is essentially what we've done for the last 500 years. We've shifted money around into hiding things so we never saw them. And we're still doing that. We know that trillions and trillions of dollars are hidden in offshore accounts in those areas by wealthy MPs with second jobs, don't we? So, and some other people as well. So that has been that we have an internal system that it, that perpetuates one way of seeing things and another way of seeing things. And when do we want to look at it, and when don't we want to look at it? And and I think there is always, you know, good days and bad days where you're willing to see things and when you're not willing to see things and whether you want to wake up and, and, and smell the co coffee, literally. So how do we do that? I think it has to go back to education and it also has to go back to empathy. We have to teach everyone to be a bit more empathetic about each other and each other's lives so that we can then understand that, that what the loss is for them. And actually picking up on what you said about the slave trade in Bath, one of the things that people don't know is parade gardens used to be one of the areas where they used to do the smelting to make the jewellery to then ship to Africa to buy the slaves. So whenever you are on Holby Bridge and you look down into um, Parade Gardens, you know, that is, you know, the slave trade worked all the way up the River Avon. I didn't it's, know that. Yeah, shocking. Mm. Slave trail. Thank you very much. Uh, Molly, I think at this point, although I'm now the boy that cried wolf, I think you are going to well, yeah. leave us. So can I ask everyone to thank Molly for coming all the way to Bath.